This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. The curtains came down on a successful G20 summit hosted for the first time by India in its rotational presidency with a 100% consensus on the Delhi declaration. The consensus was arrived at on the first day of the summit itself as members agreed after hours of negotiations on a watered down language on Russia's invasion of Ukraine so as to get the Russian and Chinese on board as well who were not represented by their presidents but instead by their foreign minister and by their premier respectively now the continental bloc of african union has become the latest addition to the grouping which has 19 developed industrialized as well as developing economies and the european union significantly on the sideline we saw a major announcement of an infrastructure connectivity project uh, by united states india uae saudi among others that will link india to the middle east and to europe so the question is is the g20 a lesser divided house now does the inclusion of the african union mark a milestone movement towards concerns of the global south and how does one read the shifting geopolitical dynamics in the gulf the changing relations between india uae and saudi in particular hi everyone you've tuned in to episode 15 of the foreign policy podcast beyond nation and state on suno india i'm your host and independent journalist smita sharma now this is actually the last episode of the current season as we take a break on the series but you can listen in to all the episodes on the suno india app apple and spotify and the episode the video drops on my youtube station smita sharma journalist and joining me on this edition of beyond nation and state is a retired career diplomat navdeep suri he has served as india's ambassador to uae egypt as high commissioner to australia is currently a distinguished fellow with observer research foundation and is a prolific writer and commentator thank you so much ambassador suri for finding time pleasure to join you again smita you know uh, let me start by in fact first getting a couple of reactions on the g20 agreement itself before i start focusing on that important outcome on the sideline that was announced of a middle east connectivity corridor project when it comes to the paragraphs on russia ukraine and how the consensus came about on that declaration a lot is being discussed your thoughts on do you think you know there was one winner in that paragraph which looked very watered down on the ukraine war not at all um i think uh, uh, you look at it from the point of view that uh, while you drop russia from the text uh but you've actually tightened the language a lot more uh, the language is much tougher in terms of what it says about not using a uh, uh, force to acquire territory uh or uh, against the use of nuclear weapons or threats of use of nuclear weapons or indeed uh the prime minister's line that this is not a need of war uh so i think there's a lot in it uh at the end of the day you know you need to carry everybody together with you what's the point of saying I want hundred percent or zero. That's not diplomacy. 
So, uh, you know, it's the art of the possible. And uh, I think what our uh, negotiators did uh, with a lot of help from uh, leadership level calls uh, is to uh, put together a text that everybody could live with uh, the G7 uh, on one side and the Russians and potentially the Chinese on the other side. You know, we've seen interviews of Amitabh Kant, the D20 Sherpa, talk about how some other countries, Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia, also put their weight behind this Delhi Declaration, trying to make it work. Um, several hours of negotiations. Would you like to give a sense to our listeners and viewers of what really happens in these meetings behind the scenes, in the rooms? Are there situations when negotiators maybe even come to blows? I think that's unlikely in this day and age and in this kind of a group. But, you know, <laughs> Amitabh has already given you a, a, a sense, a flavor of uh, what transpired. What I can tell you is that very often you are stuck on a line, on a paragraph, sometimes even on a word. And very often these words matter. If you go back to uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and United Nations Security Council Resolution 242, there's one word, the, Israel will vacate the occupied territories or occupied territories, which made all the difference in, 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 uh, when the uh, time for implementation comes. So I think the, 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 the language is extremely important and, and, and people legitimately, you know, what might seem pedantic to an outsider can make a real difference uh, in future if the uh, wording is uh, incorrect. So I'm glad that people put the effort that they uh, did into it. There's a lot of back and forth. Many of the negotiators are actually friends. They get along very well with each other at a personal level. But uh, but uh, they won't give a quarter on the negotiating table uh, because at that time they are battling for their country's uh, interests and not for their personal uh, preferences. Absolutely. And one can imagine whole nighters being pulled in with lots of coffee flowing into the room, the midnight oil being burned. But... To, you know, the unworst, what does a consensus like this essentially translate into? Uh, in Bali also, I think it's important to remind people here, while here we did mention that on the first day itself, you had a consensus document uh, and we saw people actually applauding it. In Bali also, by the start of the second day itself, before the deliberations and the plenaries happened, they had managed to do the last minute negotiations and come out with this declaration. But does it really mean that going forward, when Brazil now takes over the presidency formally in December, that it is a more united room within the G20? Yeah, I think what India has been able to do uh, is uh, build a consensus. First of all, build a coalition with Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa. And, and, and you know, this is really the Tri-Cup last, you know, Indonesia is the last host, Brazil and uh, South Africa is the next two hosts. Uh, so each one has a real stake in the success of the, uh, the, the process. Uh, so I, th I think India has enhanced its reputation as a unifier in a very divided world uh, where uh, the polarization is fairly extreme uh, because of the Ukraine war. But allow me to say, Smita, that I don't think we, we as Indians should get fixated on the language on Ukraine because really what the uh, Delhi Declaration tries to achieve, um, whether it is on the form of multilateral financial institutions, on climate finance, on digital public infrastructure, on sustainable development goals. I mean, those are things that will really matter to people. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in um, Zambia or Angola or somewhere and worried about 
you know, the growing debt crisis and the unsustainable uh, repayments that the country has to pay. That matters to you a lot more than uh, 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 the uh, language on Ukraine. So I think we get caught into this Western media trap that that is the most important uh, issue and the success or failure of a summit, which has, I don't know, 84 paragraphs or whatever, is going to be judged by that one paragraph. I, I, I think that's a, that's a very... Uh, a very Western notion. Let's look at what it means in substantive terms for people. And, and I think that, that's where India has been able to uh, uh, progress. Nothing is revolutionary, but it is incremental progress on where we were on a number of issues. And those issues are the ones that matter to the developing world. Getting Africa on the table uh, matters to the developing world. For G20 to become a credible voice, not just of the rich nations, but also of the global south matters. And I think the progress on those issues is far more significant, in my opinion, than this uh, debate on Ukraine. Fair enough. Point well taken. But the fact that, you know, the Ukraine war shadow continues to loom large, the fact that you have a Xi Jinping missing out on the summit meeting for the first time, he sends out his premier into the room. Uh, again, with Mr. Putin, uh, we are not sure that he'll even be able to make it to Brazil, considering the international warrant against him out there. So when when the top leaders miss out on summits, is, is there a certain cost for an organization, which obviously is very top heavy and top driven? I think the ones who don't participate are the ones who lose out more, um, not the organization per se. Because at the end of the day, you had a very, very respectable collection of heads of uh, state. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, beyond the summit level meeting itself, it's a great opportunity to network and to connect and to have bilaterals uh, with the other leaders. And I think those who are absent from the uh, room have missed out on that. I mean, I think China is uncomfortable uh, given Xi Jinping's emperor uh, ambitions kind of thing or persona that they are creating uh, for him to be in a, in a space that they don't control, uh, where he could be subject to criticism. Uh, and and uh, uh, that probably, I, I'm, I'm speculating here, uh, is the reason that they didn't want to expose him to uh, a G20 setup, but they were okay having him at BRICS. Um, you know, they want to control the BRICS uh, space, uh, which is something that India will resist and uh, probably Brazil uh, will resist. Uh, but um, that's how they are trying to uh, position themselves. And having said that again, you know, the fact that um, within BRICS, you do see a competition of both India and China wanting to be that voice of the global south. Uh, increasingly, China and Russia's focus on forums like SEO BRICS. How will this play out when you compare it to an organization like G20, which also now has the 55-member African Union bloc that you talked about as its latest, the, you know, the 21st edition? Look, even though India is a member of BRICS and of uh, SEO, I think there's very little doubt that the global heft is in G20. This is where the world's 20 largest economies are. Uh, and, and this is where they deliberate the um, issues pertaining to the global economy that matter to a majority of the world's population, or at least they should be deliberating those issues. So uh, I, I, I think uh, much as though we, as we love uh, BRICS, I'm not so sure about SEO, uh, but uh, there is nothing comparable with G20 when it comes to a, a, a group of countries 
which represent the largest economies in the world. Uh, you know, you did mention, of course, some of the significant outcomes. We have seen the move, the agreement towards a one future alliance that lays out a sort of a digital public infrastructure for health, for other issues. Uh, for the first time, perhaps a summit laying out a $5.9 trillion number as what is required for green financing of developing economies. Uh, does, does it look like with African Union as part of G20, will it be easier to maneuver? through issues of developing economies or, you know, when, when you start to expand organizations that also get that much more difficult when it comes to decision making? I think the importance of having African Union uh, on the high table for G20 is twofold. One is in this day and age in 2023, how would you justify that you have the European Union as a much smaller a group of nations uh, as a permanent member and not the African Union, which is 54 countries uh, and an entire continent. Uh, so that, the, you know, the very, uh, um, the primacy of any kind of fairness, if you uh, agree, you had to uh, bring them in. But second and more, more important, I think, is instead of countries ranging from India and China and uh, uh, Brazil and South Africa, saying we're speaking for the global south, we're speaking for Africa. It's important that now Africa will have its own voice through the African Union on the table to articulate its problems, its concerns, advocate the solutions that they seek, uh, uh, you know, have more agency on um, on, on their uh, requirements rather than have a situation where Others are speaking for them. I think that's the that's the crucial uh, difference that we will see going forward. And I think it was refreshing that even from the African Union context, you had Comoros, one of the smallest countries in Africa, representing because they happen to be the current chairs of the African Union. Which brings me then to the next part of this conversation and the important, in fact, you know, decision announced on the sidelines. We saw President Biden, Prime Minister Modi come together to announce the India-Middle East-Europe Economic Corridor or the IMEC, which is a transnational rail and shipping route, uh, which will spread actually across uh, two continents and uh, essentially go from India to the Middle East, Middle East to the Europe. Does it look like a project that could end up being hyped at the moment? Does it look very feasible when you look at the final blueprints coming out slowly? Well, Smitha, first of all, it isn't just a ship and rail connectivity project. I think uh, it's important for your audience to understand that there are four distinct components of the project. There is the transport corridor. There is the data corridor. There is the clean hydrogen corridor. And there is the electric grid uh, with renewable electricity uh, corridor. So, uh, you know, you're talking about four different things. Uh, and, and I think if all of them are able to um, happen over the next five, seven years, however long it takes, then you're really moving towards creating a, a, a corridor for the world as it will be 10 years away, not as it was 10 years ago. And I think too many of our analysts, when they are uh, skeptical about the corridor, are trying to extrapolate things from their experience of 10 years back. But 10 years back, you didn't have clean hydrogen. 10 years back, you didn't have the possibility of uh, uh, connecting the regional grids using the renewable energy. You didn't have renewable energy on the scale that you do today. 
um, you weren't as concerned about data security uh, and data being the new oil as you are today. So when you bring all of these elements together into the equation, I mean, I, I, I recognize uh, completely that it is not going to be easy, even the transport corridor. It isn't just the hard infrastructure of um, building additional railway lines. I think that's easily doable. Uh, but if you were to break up, since a lot of people are focused on the transport corridor, if you were to break up into three or four segments. So the seg first segment of the eastern leg is the shipping routes from India, west coast to the uh, Gulf. These are established. There's plenty of capacity. After all, we export $240 billion of uh, our trade with the GCC is $240 billion. So there are established shipping routes from Mundra, Kandla, Navasheva, Cochin to uh, UAE. At the designated point in UAE, whether it is Jabal Ali in Dubai or Fujairah, uh, uh, which is outside the Strait of Hormuz, your ships dock, the containers, if they are standardized, move on to a rail line. Now, from Fujairah, the land corridor, when you look at it, the first leg is up to the Saudi border. It's a 600-kilometer stretch, which is already operational. It got, uh, it got uh, inaugurated and is functional since February this year. There's a 300-kilometer stretch to a place called Harad in Saudi Arabia, which is being built. And then the longest stretch is about 1,400 kilometers, 3092 kilometers from Harad all the way to the border with Jordan, uh, a place called Al-Haditha. That's already up and running. It's functional. Then you need a 300-kilometer stretch from the Jordan border to Haifa in Israel. So when you look at it, maybe three-quarters of the physical infrastructure is already in place. Haifa port exists. Adani's happen to have a terminal there. From there, the shipping links to Piraeus in, in, in Greece are well established, and, and, and that would take it on to uh, the uh, uh, into the European continent through the European railroads. What is needed along with the physical infrastructure is the soft infrastructure of regulations, of standards, of interoperability, of compatibility, and seamless customs uh, uh, transit. You, know, you are looking at crossing four different borders. So I think work will happen on that. Uh, I am encouraged by the fact that the leaders, when they met and announced, have actually put a fairly tight time frame of the principals meeting within 60 days. So uh, I'm sure all the capitals that are involved in this will be working to put together their ideas of a blueprint, um, uh, which can be reviewed in 60 days' time. And then we will see some some details emerging on what is clearly a very ambitious, very futuristic uh, project. And we shouldn't underestimate that. Not underestimating it, but, you know, of course, as journalists, we are inherently skeptic. And that's our job to try and ask questions too. Uh, because the skepticism also stems from the fact that there is that popular commentary that this is being seen as a direct counter to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. And having said that, the Chinese BRI was a grand project that was announced, you know, 10 years back. Uh, but we have seen that in these past 10 years, they have had multiple challenges themselves. And this is a, the BRI is a even bigger sort of a project announced than this uh, Middle East corridor. So they have had problems related with liaisoning with countries, financial packages, geopolitics. And these all multiple challenges that, uh, you know, the IMEC will also be facing and be bracing up to face. Yeah, and I hope uh, that uh, the uh, uh, 
folks who are going to be working on this project um, draw lessons from the Chinese experience. What worked and what didn't work? Uh, and, and, and to be very clear in their mind that it's only going to work if it's commercially viable, if there are enough volumes to support it. There's no point in taking a container from uh, Beijing to London as a, as a pilot and say, I've got a rail link from Beijing to London. Uh, the the uh, proof of the pudding is, are there enough volumes and are you competitive enough? So currently, all the Indian exports to Europe and all the European trade with India, exports to India, uh, flow via the Suez Canal. Um, right. And, and the Suez Canal isn't cheap. Uh, so I think there are two or three different factors that will come into play as, as I see it as a, a as a layman, maybe. Um, one is, is the new route going to be faster? Um, one of the studies that I've seen because the high speed freight trains will travel at 120 kilometers per hour as compared to 30 kilometers per hour for a ship with the blockages at the Suez Canal entry point and so on, um, is that you could have a 40% saving on time. That's one parameter. The second parameter uh, is, will it cost more or less um, uh, to take a container, say, from uh, Mundra to Piraeus or to uh, Amsterdam or to uh, Berlin? Will it cost less or more? That's important. The third, if the project is viable, Will finance be available for it? Because at the end of the day, you don't, you don't just need government finance, right? I think the clever thing here is that the physical transport corridor has been bundled with clean energy, with the clean hydrogen and the clean electricity grid uh, proposals. And that should allow it to draw resources from the Build Back Better initiative, the European programs for green infrastructure, uh, green bonds, etc. So you might have private capital coming in um, to, to finance the project once you establish the techno-commercial viability. And I think we are months and months away from establishing that. I think a lot of work will take place over the next six to eight months. Uh, teams will be established. Working groups for each sector will be established. They will go into the nuts and bolts of it. But I think the important thing is that the political direction is there. And if it is an alternative to a BRI, I have no problems with that. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we are the biggest economic player in this region. And, and, and there is no reason for us then to be dependent on a BRI, Chinese-built infrastructure, and not one which where we are front and center a partner. But I'm told the Egyptians are pretty upset. Israel hasn't come on board officially, but they have reasons to be happy about it. Turkey, of course, has announced, uh, you know, that uh, there cannot be a Middle East corridor through Europe, of course, without Turkey as a partner in it. So uh, there are already, in fact, uh, these issues that uh, these countries will have to prepare to deal geostrategically. The Israelis actually have been the most enthusiastic supporters. One of their ministers has been calling it a peace train or a peace railway. Uh, uh, and, and, and they obviously see great merit in a uh, in a program that connects South that puts Saudi Arabia on the same table as them. Uh, uh, even though currently they don't. Not have sure Saudis Saudis feel the same way though right now. <laughs> Saudis South, Saudis have signed off on it. They, they have signed off to the state uh, to the uh, statement, which clearly shows that the exit point of the land route is Haifa. So there is no ambiguity uh, uh, about this. Uh, so I, I, th I think, look, the, uh, the, there's a 
geopolitical dimension of it, obviously. Uh, and whenever you have this kind of a corridor approach, there will be countries that feel, that feel left out. Turkey and Iraq have been promoting a similar idea that why don't you come to Basra and go through Iraq into Turkey and then through Turkey to the Mediterranean coast. Hypothetically possible. Um, Egypt, of course, feels that it may take traffic away from the Suez Canal. Uh, and, and, and might have, uh, therefore, uh, concerns on that basis. But if the Egyptians are worried that it will take traffic away, then maybe there's something is going right. I, I think if people are getting worried that <laughs> that, that, that this is uh, going to be a, a viable alternative to the routes that they offer, maybe it's got something going for it. Because I think, I think the important thing here is uh, the, the, not just the economic dimension, but the geopolitical uh, dimension. The fact that U.S. is making a statement that we are we haven't left the Middle East. We are very much present there. And we are not ceding space to the Chinese. We are not giving a walkover to the Chinese, which is an impression that was being created uh, partly by Chinese propaganda uh, after Xi Jinping's uh, red carpet treatment in, uh, in, in Riyadh last year in December. So uh, I, I think the fact that the Americans have pushed for this project, used ITU to, to cede it, expanded it to bring Saudi Arabia into the fold, started conversations with Saudi Arabia about normal diplomatic ties uh, with Israel. Uh, you know, there's a whole separate conversation uh, being very vigorously pursued by uh, senior members in the Biden administration about a grand deal with Israel between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So when you look at all of that mix, there's a lot brewing. And this could be one uh, one aspect of it. And I do have a lot of ground to cover in the next couple of minutes itself. But just one last question on this corridor project, because over the last few years, we have, of course, been seeing statements continuously from India, from U.S. led West about looking at that global debt trap, uh, you know, which has occurred because of China, especially when it comes to smaller income countries and lower economies. There's been a lot of noise around the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum to YPF, uh, do you really see these being able to provide the option to these developing economies uh, and alternate to China's debt trap diplomacy? Um, not as of now. I think maybe to some of the small island states in, uh, in, in the Pacific, maybe to some of the smaller economies. Uh, but I think uh, uh, the, the uh, G20 was actually the right forum to discuss the whole issue of sustainable debt. And the problem that look, I think what happened in Sri Lanka was a, was a real test case, uh, that countries were ready to provide debt waivers or debt relief to Sri Lanka. But when you have those conversations, uh, whether it's the Europeans, the World Bank, the IMF, others, they want that everybody should take a haircut, right? Everybody should, uh, uh, uh bear some of the burden. But if the Chinese are not willing to tell you, uh, how much the debt, what is the term? What are the interest rates? What's the collateral? Uh, then how do you arrive at multilateral debt relief uh, arrangements when one party says these are confidential because of our bilateral agreements? And I think that's where the, uh, the trouble with the Chinese on this issue is. Okay. Which brings me to the last part of this conversation. And because this is a region you understand very well, you've served in this region. What is happening within Saudi and UAE? The winds that are blowing. Help us make sense of it. You know, you mentioned UTI too. 
US, India, UAE and uh, Israel coming together, the Quad in the Middle East of sorts. Uh, how is Saudi really changing? Because you do have a crown prince under whom you've had the case of a killing of the dissenting voice Jamal Khashoggi. But what is he trying to do with the kingdom that he's willing to now partner more and more with countries like India, which in the recent past, you know, used to be countries that uh, they would obviously oppose given their dynamics with Pakistan and the issue of Kashmir? Well, I think part of the success of our foreign policy in the region over the last few years has been the strategic partnerships that we've established uh, with Saudi Arabia and UAE in particular. Oman, we've always had a close relationship. Bahrain, we've traditionally been close. But these two are the big players in the Gulf. And today we have strategic partnerships with both of them. Uh, I don't know if you saw a uh, commentary in the Pakistani media, almost yearning that MBS should stop over at least for a few hours and perhaps sign off on some of those privatization or investment uh, deals that they're hoping will rescue the economy. I think we should get over those comparisons. Uh, they are they are, uh, they are passe. We have large standalone relationships of our own. Uh, and, and we are much more interested in what China is doing in the region than what Pakistan used to do in the region. Uh, but, but uh, you know, what's happening in Saudi Arabia is profound. And, and I really believe that the changes being ushered in by MBS in making Saudi Arabia a more normal country, in taking away the powers of the religious police and the ulema, uh, in, uh, in scrapping some of that medieval uh, uh, legal framework and mindset. Uh, at the same time, will have a positive impact on conservative uh, or regressive Islamic communities in India, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere too. They, for example, the Saudis have not given recognition to the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, which they did previously. And that's an indication of the change in Saudi Arabia, same country, right? Uh, same regime in Afghanistan. But this time they've deprived them of the legitimacy that they crave of a... a, a and the reason I emphasize this is because Saudi Arabia is special in this. Yes, the Emiratis have been liberalizing, have been opening up and doing various things. But this is the custodian of the two holy mosques. And when they start changing their approach towards women, towards education, towards music, towards uh, concerts, towards whatever, sports, the impact, the waves of that will spread around. So I think, you know, Regardless of what happened in the unfortunate case of Jamal Khashoggi, and there's no excuses for that. But I think if we look at the bigger picture of what's unfolding, uh, it's something that uh, should be supported on a much wider scale. We've also seen, you know, the UAE's deputy prime minister, um, he recently shared a video on the India, Middle East, Europe economic corridor. And as one of the younger reporters, in fact, Sidhan Sibal was pointing out on Twitter that he actually showed the entire union territory of Jammu and Kashmir as part of India, including Park occupied Kashmir. So it ended up with the Pakistan uh, foreign office being miffed about it. Have the tides really turned when it comes to these dynamics? I think, uh, you know, as usual, journalists like to read a lot uh, into this. The fact is that that map was done under my supervision at Observer Research Foundation. It was part of an article that I wrote two years back in October 2021 after the first I2U2 meeting where they started talking about strategic transport uh, connectivity. Uh, today, and I'm happy to share with you the piece from two years back that was published uh, along with that map. 
Uh, and uh, so it's our, our team at Observer Research Foundation that put it together. We obviously were very particular about how we show Kashmir in in our, our map. And now that map has been picked up by everybody in the world. So, uh, you know, uh, it is the one which is going around. So I wouldn't read too much into it. I think most people outside of India and even within India, apart from outside a narrow fraternity, do not look at the, the lines as carefully as we are attuned to, accustomed to, 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 to doing. So for them, it could well be innocence. But the fact remains that UAE has supported India on Article 370. UAE has been very forthcoming in terms of its investments in Kashmir. I think it's very significant that some of their biggest business groups like MR and DP Word and the Lulu Group have um, made investment com- commitments in Srinagar. Um, an MR mall in Srinagar isn't just a mall. It's a very big psychological, political message that they are willing to invest in in, 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 in JNK. And, and so there's nothing to take away from the very important support that UAE has extended to India on uh, JNK. But I don't think this map itself is the indicator of that. Okay. But congratulations to you, though, for, you know, having at least successfully put out a map there, uh, which has now made the rounds, uh, so you know, in such a strong way. But just the final question then, because I think the one issue that is not talked about too much, even as the dynamics are changing, we are seeing the projection of a new Saudi, they are building a new Mustaqbil or Neom, which is going to be like a Dubai inside a Saudi with different rules uh, for, of course, expats. So it's a liberal image that is being projected slowly, steadily by the crown prince despite all his serious allegations and controversies uh, but will this change affect a change in the way terrorism is funded from within Pakistan because a lot of it the roots actually lie within the funding that was coming in from there is there going to be a difference when it comes to channelizing those funds to terror groups that are operating against India and status as well I think that's a really good uh, uh, question, Smita, from uh, India's perspective. And this is why I say that the changes that have taken place in Saudi Arabia and in UAE are so significant from our perspective. Uh, today, we are given cast iron assurances that no funding from Saudi Arabia or from UAE goes to terror outfits in Pakistan. Um, and they concede. There could still be the odd Saudi sitting in London or in Paris who's got a bank account there and who from his bank account is transferring money to some regressive madrasa uh, or to a, 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 a terrorist outfit uh, in, in Pakistan or Afghanistan. But officially, the change that has taken place in, 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 in UAE and then in Saudi Arabia is zero tolerance to terrorism. And I think your viewers should understand today our security agencies say both UAE and Saudi Arabia are amongst the top five or six countries in terms of our intelligence cooperation. Um, the Saudis picked up Abu Jandal, who was needed for uh, the 2611 uh, killings, uh, and repatriated him. The uh, Emiratis picked up Farouk Takla, uh, an aide of Dawood Ibrahim, and repatriated him. Uh, among many others, that these are only the public ones that you know about, but there are many that we don't even talk about. Uh, and, and, and so I think today our own agencies will tell you that the cooperation that we receive from these two countries is second to none. And that's an indication of the change that has taken place within these countries and in our relationship with these countries. 
Okay, we will leave it there. I think this is a very, very important region, keeping in mind both the fact that there is that absolutely strong Indian diaspora, the fact of the remittances coming in, and the geostrategic implications that when the dynamics within Saudi Arabia, the kingdom changes, when the dynamics within UAE changes and their relations, they, you know, when it comes to Pakistan, uh, India, uh, it's important for us to try and read the tea leaves, as they say. Amazar Anadi Suri, pleasure. As always, talking to you. Good pleasure. Thank you. Now that's all that I have time for on this final episode 15 for this season of Beyond Nation and State. I have really enjoyed this journey through which we have tried looking back at the negotiations that took place behind the scenes in some landmark agreements understanding the significance of shifting sands in Central Asia to West Asia and the Gulf, talking about gender and human rights beyond borders. All the past episodes are available on Sulu India, Apple and Spotify. You can watch the video segments on my YouTube station, Smita Sharma Journalist, which is also my handle for Insta as well as for Facebook. You can engage with me on Twitter at the rate Smita underscore Sharma, do keep sharing your thoughts, your feedback on what you liked about the series, maybe what you disliked about some of the episodes, and also what you would like to be included in the new season. So I'm signing off for now, but it's a thank you from the entire team here at Suno India. Stay well and thanks for tuning.